if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and find Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. So this week we're starting a new series called Explore God. Today, and then for six more weeks, each week is going to focus on a question, a big question about faith and Christianity. Questions like, is there a God? And if there is a God, why does he allow pain and suffering? And isn't Christianity narrow, too narrow? And what about Jesus? How can a person be a God? And is the Bible reliable? And the last one, how does a person know God? Really, personally know God? So these questions, we're going to deal with them. And these, the reason we're doing this is because we live in a society where at this point in time, faith in God cannot be taken for granted. Some of us grew up in a time and in places where it was difficult not to believe. Some of you, like me, were raised and really it would have been harder to not believe than it was to believe. But the conditions of belief have drastically changed. Now, for many people, it's difficult to believe. And so a basic question we need to deal with in an honest and respectful way is, is there any credibility to Christianity? Is it intellectually coherent? Can it make sense of this world and of life? And we want to face these kinds of questions. We want to face them in an honest and respectful way. We want to take the doubts and the challenges that people have when it comes to belief, belief in God, and we want to take them seriously. And so, and Christians themselves have questions. For some Christians, it's easy to believe. But for other Christians, it's difficult to make sense of our belief and our world. So this is going to be a time where we explore faith, whether you claim Christianity or not. So each week, we're going to ask one question. We're going to try to take it seriously. This week, the question is, does life have purpose? And to see a Christian perspective on this question, we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, what I hope to show you about the book of Ecclesiastes is how it takes the question, does life have purpose? And it and it it deals with this question in a way that's not simplistic, and it's not kitschy, and it's not sentimental. It's honest, it's forthright, and it really does have something to offer us. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, the very first sentence of the book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the narrator of the book presents us with this guy. He calls him the preacher. He tells us that he's a king in Jerusalem. And this king, down in verse 16, this king, the preacher, he tells us something about himself. He says, hey guys, I'm wise. 
really wise. And you should hear that the way you would hear it if your friend walked up to you and said, you can trust me, I'm really wise. So we've been introduced to this son of David, king in Jerusalem, who claims to be wise. If you're familiar with the Bible, who should your thoughts go to? Solomon, the third king of Israel. Even though Solomon's name is never mentioned in the book, and even though the book was written 600 years after Solomon, the narrator wants you to think about Solomon. Not to trick you. He wants you to imagine Solomon. He wants you to imagine that the preacher is this Solomon-like figure with all of the resources of a king, all the money, all the power, and the self-proclaimed wisdom. And this is really important. This is, this is so important for everything that follows in the book. When it comes to Solomon, you also need to remember he was raised in the faith. So this character that the narrator presents to us is someone who has been thoroughly immersed in the faith of the Bible. In terms of our language today, this guy's a Christian. He was raised by parents who believed in God. He was taught the faith and he bought into it. He's a believer. And then you read the second sentence. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. All is vain. And you're supposed to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, right? I've just been told that you're like this paradigm of wisdom. You've got all of these resources. You've got all of this intellect. You were raised by David. And the first words out of your mouth are, life stinks. It's vain. It's worthless. And you're supposed to see that this is a brilliant author of this book. He does something in verse 1, and then he jars you in verse 2. And you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to get to verse 2 as the ideal reader. An ideal reader, that's the reader, the author, envisions reading his work. And you're supposed to have thought, oh, okay, I'm, I'm envisioning this guy. And then coming out of his mouth is this really jarring thing. Now, there is a huge discussion about how to translate this word vanity. Uh, the, the, this part of the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, and the word is havel, all right? If you're taking notes, H-E-V-E-L. And it's translated vanity sometimes, um, useless or meaningless or absurd or transient. I'm sure there's as many, trans, as many translations of the Bible as there are in this room. There's probably that many different uses of the word here. And so this book of the Bible is written in Hebrew. This word havel, literally in Hebrew, it means vapor. But everybody agrees that the author is using vapor, or the, 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 the character, he's using vapor in a metaphorical way. He's not saying vapor, vapors. Like, he's using this as a metaphor. Look down at verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is havel. There's the word. 
And look at the next phrase. A striving for the wind. Now this helps us understand what the preacher means when he says the word vanity or however your Bible translates that word. Because this word hevel, it's most commonly paired up with this phrase striving after the wind in the book of Ecclesiastes. It comes up over and over and over. You have the word that everybody's struggling with trying to figure out what it means paired up with this phrase striving after the wind. And so for the preacher, what he's saying is that in the same way it's hard to grab a hold of the wind, to control the wind, to predict the wind, to make it do what you want it to do. He's saying that in the same way, life is like that. And and what he's doing is he's saying, life is like trying to get the meaning of life. It's sort of like trying to control the wind, trying to... Hold the wind in your hand. Somewhere, at some point in time, this preacher has become disillusioned with life. We don't know how he developed this despair about life. The book doesn't tell us what led him into this cynical position. All we know is at some point in time, this guy, the preacher, he enters into a deep, crisis of faith and it's because life has become meaningless a guy by the name of Jerry Sitzer wrote this remarkable book called A Grief uh, A Grace Disguised he wrote it back in the mid 90's it describes how he faced the sudden tragic loss of his wife his mother, and his four-year-old daughter all at the same time in a car wreck when he was driving. And so Sitzer says that after that happened, the darkness just kind of descended on him. He, He wrote about it. He said, I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I might never emerge again as a sane, normal, believing man. Now the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it's showing us a guy that's in something like that. He's in this darkness. But his crisis is not centered around an irreversible catastrophe like the loss of his wife, his mom, and his daughter. His deep darkness is intellectual. It's about the meaninglessness of life, the purposelessness. What is the purpose of life? Why is it even worth living? Now, obviously, there are times in our life where we Think about that question, does life have meaning? And it doesn't bother us. It's not hard. It's not overwhelming. There are these moments in life where you can talk about the purpose of life while you're having coffee with a friend and you've got no sweat going, no no skin in the game. But for the preacher, this issue had settled into his mind the way that darkness 
descended upon Jerry Sitzer. And when it comes to the kind of darkness that Sitzer went through, it's easy for us to connect up with his despair. I mean, we can imagine that, that what it's like to, for him to have been hit with catastrophe after catastrophe, grief beyond measure, bereavement, the complete loss of these people that he holds dear. We can easily kind of sympathize and imagine that kind of suffering. But in Ecclesiastes, we see this suffering of more of an intellectual variety, that it can be no less devastating. It can be no less disorienting and overwhelming. The preacher is struggling over the purpose of life, and it is an excruciating struggle for him. Look at verse 3. What's the benefit for humans in all their labor at which they labor under the sun? This is not the calm question of a philosopher. This is a guy that's on the edge of his sanity. What's the purpose of all the labor that we labor with? This is the driving question of the whole book. It's the programmatic question that drives the book. It's the energy of the book. And for the preacher, the elusiveness of an answer to this question, it's not a physical suffering, but we should never minimize the suffering that can occur in people's minds. When you read this book, this guy is going through hell. So on the one hand, he's what we would call a believer. And this comes out throughout the book. Throughout the book, his belief in God pops up. It, it shows through. It's part of who he is. So he has this basic belief that life has purpose. And life does have meaning because there is a God. And this God, he is good and purposeful. And he believes that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, this is the one true God. And Yahweh has created all things. And because God is good and because he's made all things, then everything has purpose and everything has meaning. He believes that. That's a basic belief in his life. And yet, he suddenly entered into a moment in life where for whatever reason, these kind of contradictions that a lot of us are able to just go right by in life. Like, why was I born in America instead of being born in, in a place that's getting, it's being bombed right now? Why, why, why was I born a privileged white person instead of um, an enslaved African American? You know, there are these, mo these big complex issues that we go through in life and we can walk right by them but then there's suddenly these moments where for some people these kind of absurdities and these kind of um, ironies just fall on them like the darkness fell on Jerry Sitzer. That's the, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what's going on in this book. And we don't know how it happened to him. We don't know if it came on him suddenly or if it grew in him. This nagging thing just grew, 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 grew. But somehow, this issue became impossible for the preacher. And at some point, point he began to be torn apart by a tug of war going on inside of him. On the one hand, there's faith. And on the other hand, there's doubt. And he's plagued by this conflict between his head and his heart. Between his beliefs and his experiences. And he's barely hanging on. 
In fact, at some points, he doesn't hang on at all. He abandons all hope. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. I hated life. If you had bumped into him at that moment, there was nothing left. No hope, no belief. And then in verse, the very next verse, verse 18, I hated all my labor at which I labor under the sun, for I have to leave it to someone who comes after me. And who knows whether that person's going to be a wise person or a fool. He's talking about his kids. Like, I'm going to give them everything I've worked for, and who knows what they're going to do with it. And so he says, what have I worked for? And then in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he's overwhelmed by injustice, oppression, rivalries, loneliness, lack of community, and he really gets worn out over governments that don't do good, that are inefficient and inept. He reminds me of this character in Flannery O'Connor's first novel, Wise Blood. It's a guy by the name of Hazel Moats. And he's dogged by faith and doubt. And he's trapped between them. He's torn between the promised land of the Christian faith and the fallen world of his own experiences. And this excruciating tension is what lies at the heart of Ecclesiastes. Now, obviously, not everyone goes through a dark night of the soul with regarding the meaning of life. The purpose of life. But in Ecclesiastes, the preacher's overwhelming journey into this issue opens up for us some profound insights into the uniquely Christian perspective on is there a purpose to life. And the most important insights of the book, they come not from the resolution, but from how he resolves the issue. See, it would be so easy for me to preach a sermon this morning saying, is there a purpose of life? Well, of course there's a purpose of life. It's God and his glory. That would be a very predictable sermon. Who would want to do that? But what Ecclesiastes does is right in the middle of this book that says, yes, the purpose of life is God and his glory. But right in the middle of this huge book called the Bible, it shows us how to get to a place where we can feel that purpose deep in our bones. You see, the issue for the preacher is that he begins to move toward resolution on this own struggle he's going through. The the key to his kind of beginning to resolve the issue is a growing recognition in the book that he's been trying to solve the problem the wrong way. He's been trying to solve the problem like a good American by relying on his reason, his experiences, and his observations apart from God. Let me show you what I mean. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. There is a greater concentration of first-person pronouns in chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 11, than any other place in the entire Bible. He's drunk on himself. I, I. I, 
Here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And what we're seeing here, right up front in this marvelous, complicated book, is that he, he gives us an indicator that in his search for meaning, he is primarily dependent on his own resources. He's dependent on himself rather than on the Lord when it comes to figuring out the meaning of life. In other words, as the book of Ecclesiastes develops, it becomes poignantly apparent that the major problem is his method. And there's a striking parallel here between the preacher's search for purpose and St. Augustine's search for wisdom. Somewhere in the early 370s, so 1,700 years ago, Augustine began to to read the writings of Cicero. And it awakened in him a thirst, a hunger for wisdom. So he began to search. And eventually, this led him to Christ. But, as with the preacher in Ecclesiastes, Augustine's journey was sort of like this book. It led him down some really painful, dark paths. In his book, Confessions, which was the first autobiography in world history. He wrote this. I was trying to find the origin of evil, but I was quite blind to the evil of my own method of research. Now, some people argue that Augustine was the greatest intellect of his day in the Roman Empire. And reading the book of Ecclesiastes, clearly the preacher is a powerful intellect. But a major lesson of Ecclesiastes is that a high IQ is not the same as wisdom. And like I said, the preacher in the book develops this growing awareness that his intelligence his reason, his observation, his own reflection on his experiences, this is not enough. In fact, this might be his problem. A really important place in this book where this shows up is in chapter 7. If you have your Bible, turn there or listen. Chapter 7, verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. Scheme of things. It means like, what's the purpose? What's the kind of order to all the chaos of this world? And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness of its madness. And I find something. Remember, he's searching. And he found something. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets. And whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another. Very rational, very reasonable. Take this, observe it, categorize it. Now, now add up this, now put it all together. This is what I found, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found something else. One man among a thousand I can find, but a woman among all these I can't. Now, this is a complicated passage, but bear with me. It has nothing to do 
with sexism. It has everything to do with the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, there are two women. The book of Proverbs is written to young men. And it says to these young men, look, there are two women out there. There is Lady Wisdom and Dane Folly. They both have houses. They both have tables. They both offer you feast. Lady Wisdom offers you the feast of life. Dame Folly offers you the feast of death. And so here's the preacher. And he's searching and he's looking for a way out of his despair. He's looking for a way to make sense of life. He's looking for a way to make sense of the good and the bad, of the joys and the sufferings. And he's really good at finding stuff, right? That's what it says in verse 28. I can find one man among a thousand. I can find a needle in a haystack. I am a really good investigator. I am really smart. I figure stuff out. I made A's in all of my math classes. I made A's in all of my science classes. I am the CEO of a very impressive business. I've built stuff. I know how to find things. But then he says, a woman among all these I can't find. He's not saying there's no good women, there's only good men. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is there's a particular woman he can't find. He can't find wisdom. He cannot find the path of life and joy and satisfaction. He can't find it. Instead, he keeps finding this woman whose hands are these like like fetters. In the book of Proverbs, it says, Dame Folly's hands are fetters. What he keeps finding is foolishness. He keeps finding death. The more he tries to figure out the meaning of life, the more he despairs. The more he tries to find life, the more he finds death. The more he tries to make sense of things, the less sense it makes. He keeps finding meaninglessness when he's looking for meaning. He keeps finding purposelessness when he's looking for purpose. He keeps finding death when he's looking for life. And why? Why can't he find it? Because he says over and over, the way I'm going about it is I'm adding one thing to another. The problem with his search is the way he's searching. Go back two chapters. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Some people say it's the heart of this book. Here's the preacher, and he urges the reader to approach the temple cautiously in order not to observe, not to analyze, but to listen to God's instruction. And he ends in verse 7 by saying, Fear God. Now the reason this is so important is that the book of Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And so one way in which the preacher begins to find help is that he's beginning to recognize that leaning on his own intelligence apart from God. He's not setting up smart versus God, reason versus God, experience versus God. He's setting up Reason alone versus reason with God. Intelligence alone versus intelligence with God. Experience alone versus experience with God. And what he's showing is that his own powers of observation and his own experiences and his own reason apart from God, without starting out in the posture of the fear of God, it will only lead him deeper and deeper into despair. It will just, he'll keep bumping into enigmas. So go to the end of the book, chapter 12. 
Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now, the way he's using memory here, remember, it's more than some casual act of remembering something. This is about learning that God is a being to be known, not a problem to be solved. This is about letting your whole perspective on life be informed by the view that God is the creator of everything. And this is precisely what the preacher has been missing. His whole quest for the purpose of life has been isolated from God. Remember, one of the great characteristics is, of this book is his obsessive use of the first-person pronoun, I, I, I. The, the answer to the perplexities of life is for him to find a way back to the starting point, which is God as the creator of all things. Now, this, does, this won't take you away from struggles, but it will put you in a position to find purpose that satisfies It will put you in a position to affirm life has meaning even when you're in a dark place. Are you exploring God? Are you exploring the Christian perspective on God? This takes us right to the center of it. Remember, the preacher was a believer. Christians are not exempt From this kind of struggle, any person who enters deeply into a relationship with God will sooner or later face dark nights that are utterly perplexing. And remember, we don't know how the preacher got into this. Often these kinds of crises of the faith, they descend on us unawares. And before we know it, like the preacher, like Jerry Sitzer, our very existence is at stake and we're fighting for our lives whether it's a physical suffering or an intellectual suffering. And and this is so important. There is a sense in which how a person gets into darkness is not all that important. What's really important is will you let the struggle unfold? Will you trust that there is a creator who will bring resolution? In this amazing book of the Bible, we see the preacher working through the excruciating loss of, Not of his wife and children, but the loss of meaning. And he finds his way, not to an answer, but back to the starting point. The fear of God. Have you found your way there? Now some of you are in college. And you're being bombarded with new ideas and new frames of reference. And you're experiencing the activation of the intellectual life which is only just beginning. But it's already running ahead of your lived experiences. And after a year of this, you, can't, you think you can't believe in God anymore. And what's happening is that you are just beginning to learn how truly difficult it is to have faith. And how difficult it is to be a committed Christian. I love Ecclesiastes. It's my favorite book in the Bible. When the struggle opened up in the preacher's life, he never ran from it. 
He faced it. He faced it head on. And this authentic embrace of the struggle laid the basis for its resolution. Now, maybe you were brought up to believe that Jesus was your Lord and Savior, but now you yearn to know whether that's really true or not. And if it is true, what does it mean? And for you to come of age, you have to come to terms with faith in Jesus. Or maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're a person who's attracted to belief. You're prone to it. You often, you're covetous of it in others. And sometimes you're even brought to the threshold of belief. When you find yourself in a situation like the preachers, the critical question is how? How are you going to find your way home again? And in Ecclesiastes, we see the bankruptcy of the enlightenment belief that a rigorous, objective reason is the way to handle everything. I'm not saying that Christian faith is unreasonable. It's reasonable, but it is a reason beyond the scope of a godless reason. In Ecclesiastes, we see the bankruptcy of an approach to life that shears off God. Remember your creator. Fear the Lord. If you can get there, if you can develop that posture and that stance, you can begin to move toward a resolution of the question, what is the purpose of life? 